And as we come to 1 Kings tonight, we read three chapters on Tuesday night, 15, 16, and 17. 15, 16 is like the road trip where you just go by all those towns because it's six kings from the north that were all bad kings. It's the descendants of Jeroboam in the northern kingdom of Israel. And there's no good kings in the northern kingdom. They progressively get worse. It's this conspiracy, this assassination, and all that kind of stuff. But ultimately, when they got to the sixth king, that's Omri, and he was such a, he was a very powerful king, and he's actually mentioned in extra-biblical archaeological records. He's mentioned by the, in the Moabite records, and he's also mentioned in the Assyrian records. And the Assyrians, of course, eventually conquered the northern kingdom of Israel. So it's fascinating to me that Omri, the father of Ahab, was that renowned that not only do we have the record of him in the Bible by the Holy Spirit, but we have archaeological records that mention him as well as being a powerful and a crafty king. In fact, we're told by the Holy Spirit that none did evil more than Omri up to that time. But if that's not enough, his son came to power, Ahab. And remember, he's an Israelite. We're told in the back part of chapter 16, he married Jezebel, a Lebanese woman, and she worshipped Baal, and she was a powerful woman. She was a princess. So it's one of those political marriages that happen like we see in human history. And her influence of Baal will override his any faith that he would have had in Jehovah, the God of Israel, because bad company corrupts good morals. And that always happens that way. And that's just the way it works. So in this background, the seventh king now reigns in the, in the north, Ahab. And Ahab and Jezebel are going to dominate the scripture for weeks to come, verse by verse, and also topically, because God chose to let us know, more, know a lot about them, probably more than we want to know. And with that in mind, we pick it up in chapter 17, verse 1, because Elijah is the light in the darkness, and he is the response, God's response to a dark time, spiritually, morally, geopolitically. So chapter 17, verse 1, we read this. And Elijah, the Tishbite of the inhabitants of Gilead, said to Ahab, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. This is the introduction to us of Elijah. There's no buildup like, like with Samson, you know, the angel comes to his parents and says, you're going to have this kid, he's going to be amazing, he's going to be a Nazarite. We don't get any buildup. Arguably the greatest prophet in the Old Testament just shows up. He's a Tishbite from Gilead. That's the other side of the Jordan River. And he just shows up on the scene and there's no resume of introduction he just shows up and makes one statement and changes the course of Israel history and is introduced to us as this amazing person in the Bible. So here's Elijah, and the first thing we need to think about just in general is where he came from, which I just mentioned, but who he is in the big scope of the panoramic of the Bible itself. Because when Jesus was confronted about various things with the religious leaders, he said, don't think I came to cancel the law that God gave in the Old Testament through Moses, but I came to fulfill the law and the prophets. And even when Jesus, after he was resurrected in Luke 24, when he appeared to the apostles, he opened their understanding to the scriptures to understand the, the Psalms, the law, and the prophets. So essentially, we divide our Old Testament in those three categories. The historical books, Genesis through Esther, the poetic books, Job through Ecclesiastes, and then the prophetic books, starting with Isaiah all the way till um, Malachi. Or, yeah, Malachi. So that's how we divide our Old Testament, because that's how Jesus divided the Old Testament. And in this division, when we say the prophets, when we say the law, we think of Moses. When you think the poetic books, we can think Solomon, or Solomon with Proverbs or David with Psalms. But when you say the prophet, we really tend to associate it not so much with Isaiah and Jeremiah and Daniel, those guys, but the one who doesn't have a book, Elijah. Because Elijah goes beyond just this introduction and how he's going to be in our narrative for the coming weeks. In the New Testament, actually before the Old Testament is done, in Malachi, we're told that before the great day of the Lord, Elijah will come. So there's a promise in the scripture around 400 BC, so 500, 400 years after the life of Elijah, that he will return. And he will return before the great day of the Lord when the kingdom is established all the promises in the Old Testament concerning Jesus Christ and his reign on planet Earth. When the angel Gabriel appeared to Zacharias, the priest, and announced to him this miracle son who had become John the Baptist, 
He said, your son will go forth in the spirit and the power of Elijah. And so profound was this ministry that when Jesus was glorified on the Mount of Transfiguration with Moses and Elijah showing up bodily, like from, another, from the other dimension of eternity, they're there with him. And Peter, John, and James were there. As they went down the mountain, they, they asked Jesus, why do the scriptures say that John that uh, Elijah has to come. But like, we don't understand because we just saw Elijah. They knew this was Moses and Elijah with Jesus. And the father said, this is my son, hear him. And, and Jesus said, I tell you, he's already come. But he was, if you can receive it, he's not, he was not received. But he's not talking that John the Baptist was a reincarnation of Elijah, but he came in the spirit and the power like Elijah. And then ultimately, in the book of Revelation, we're told of these two super prophets And no matter how one would interpret the book of Revelation, and there are different interpretations that people have of the book of Revelation of Jesus Christ, there's no doubt that there's two super prophets at the end of the age, and they do the signs, that the signs and wonders of Elijah, because Elijah does have signs and wonders, and Moses. So a lot of people think Moses and Elijah come back before Jesus comes back at the end of the age, the second coming. Other people think maybe it's Enoch, not Moses, but Enoch and Elijah, but most people think it's Elijah. And one of the reasons for that is, we'll see soon enough, that Elijah didn't die. He, he was caught up to be with the Lord, the famous story of Elijah's chariot. And I'll teach more on that when we get to it, because God gave me a vision of that that was quite clear and quite profound that many of you heard me tell. But I definitely believe God showed me how that works in the realm of dimensions and how the chariot came for Elijah. And when we get there in 2 Kings, I'll cover that in greater detail. Probably a topical study, actually. So when we think about Elijah, he comes to us from Gilead. He's from this, this town that no one really knows where it's at, because no one really knows where that town is at. But the region we know is on the other side of the Jordan River, modern Jordan. And he didn't die. 400 years after he was caught up, we're told that he's going to come before the Lord. Zacharias is told his son John is a type of, of Elijah. Jesus was glorified with Elijah and Moses. And then Revelation tells us that this prophet's there who fits the billing of Elijah before the great day of the Lord. And so it's worth getting the panoramic look at Elijah as we come to him in the context here tonight because we need to know who he is and he's going to be a part of our text for certainly weeks to come. And he is the light that shines in a dark time. And it's been said that in the darkest of times, the bright lights shine brightest, right? a city on a hill with the light of the world, all those things that Jesus said, and Elijah is that guy. So in the midst of going from bad king to bad king to bad king to bad king to bad king, all of a sudden he shows up with the worst of all the kings, because we were told that Ahab was even worse than his dad, Omri, and here's Elijah. And as he shows up, we, we have these stories in chapter 17, and, and there's actually, they're connected But there's different applications. So tonight, as we get into our topical look at his life, I really want to just take some lessons from his life. Rather than just breaking down one segment of the scripture and focusing on that, like this is the whole topical, and even trying to, you know, try and make it all connect, I would rather just teach, like I do sometimes, things that we learn from each one of these stories in this chapter and, and receive them and take them in light of our current timeline when we're alive and what the Lord have for us as followers of Jesus Christ. So in these first couple of verses that I read, this first verse, chapter 1, he's, he, he appears before Ahab, the most powerful man in Israel. He's the king of the north. And he's the son of the, the most previous powerful king that we have other writings about. And so he comes, he comes to him, and this is what he says. This is the opening sentence. As the Lord God of Israel lives, so he serves the living God, right? We serve the living God. As the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be no dew nor rain these years except at my word. Now, the book of James tells us that the, the prayer of a righteous man availeth much, and that Elijah with a nature like ours prayed that it wouldn't rain, and it didn't. We'll come back to that with his prayer for the widow's son about the, the power of Elijah's prayer. But it, this story is recorded for us in the New Testament as an encouragement for all of us to be people of great expectation and great faith and, and people that with prayer in the church, the early church that can move mountains. And we'll come to that, but it's worth noting this is the context of James here. But what gets me in this part is how he says, as the Lord God of Israel lives, before whom I stand. Think about that. Before whom I stand. See, if we stand before the Lord, we won't be afraid to stand before men. 
If we bow before the Lord and see the Lord, we won't need to bow before men and see them. Either God's on the throne or man's on the throne. Kind of like we see, you have a, a, a big problem and a small God or a big God and a small problem. But faith is a substance of things hoped for, the evidence not yet seen. So in, in keeping the perspective in time, space, and matter of eternity over all, we need to constantly be filling our mind with the word of God, the promises of God, spending time in his presence, meditating upon God, letting God confirm things to us by his presence, by his spirit, to be still and know that he's the Lord. And Elijah was that kind of guy because when he stands before the most powerful man in all Israel, he's the most powerful man. Again, he controls uh, landmass the size of Los Angeles County, Riverside County, and Orange County, for sure, the Northern Kingdom. All of its resources, all of its wealth. He's the one that taxes everybody. They built the, the, the new Samaria where the capital is, and they're at war with the southern kings in Judah. And his dad was a bad dude, and he scared people. And he's the son of a bad dude. It's not like Solomon and Rehoboam, but it's similar in a different way. And, and this is that Ahab, and his, his wife is super radical. She's like this scary, scary radical, powerful woman, and intimidating. Her presence intimidated people. And these two together were a power couple. And they're all doing their sin. They're all worshiping Baal. In fact, so dark is the moral fiber of the people at this time, God's people in the north. Remember, God gave them the law. He gave them the prophets. He gave, he, man, they were set up for success. And when they rebelled against God, they were doomed for failure because that's what they chose. But later on, when Ahab, excuse me, when Elijah says to the Lord, I'm the only one left, the Lord says, no, I've reserved 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So in this landmass, at this time, there's a remnant. And Elijah, as he comes before Ahab, he's the voice of the remnant. He's actually the voice of sanity, of common sense, of critical thinking, of proper worldview in a universe created by Christ, for Christ, and held together in Christ. He's the voice of sanity in the midst of insanity. Because when people start taking their clothes off and acting like animals before Baal, it's just all insanity. And anything goes. And if you remove the ancient boundaries and the landmarks of God's words of absolute right and wrong, truth and falsehood, then it's just insanity. So there's a remnant of people who are surrounded by the majority of people who act like that, who are insane in their false worship. There's 7,000 of them, but they're all on the down low. They're hanging low. They're laying low. They're scared. They're scared to raise their voice. They're scared to put their post out there or comment on social media. They're scared. They're scared to be woke, broke, and canceled. They're scared of the algorithm. They're scared of Big Brother. They're scared of... <laughs> just about everything. They're scared. And they're on the down low. But their hearts are not yoked to Baal. Their hearts are yoked to Jehovah, the living God. As the Lord God of Israel lives, is what Elijah says. His introduction, just how does this happen? Like, you know, like there's just crazy things. The story of Brian McDaniel, our good friend who does ministry in Haiti, before the president of Haiti was assassinated, he had a divine appointment with Brian McDaniel, just a week or two before that, and Brian gave him a Bible. And this whole conversation happened, and it's just like, how does that happen? Where suddenly, like, you're talking to the president of Haiti, and you're the one doing the ministry for Jesus in Haiti. It can happen. Like I said, President Clinton walked by me when he was the president, when he was at the governor's convention in 1995 in Vermont. I didn't talk to him, but I was closer to him than I am to Clyde right now in the front row. I was like, that's the president of the United States. And so here we go, and, and we've seen in human history, and we've seen even in the news in times past, where someone will speak up, and they'll reprove a president, they'll reprove a governor, they'll reprove someone publicly, and, and usually those people who are in power and are, you know, seize power and are antichrist in their power, they'll try and talk down or shame or humiliate or embarrass those people that are calling them out. That's pretty common. I mean, John the Baptist called out Herod the Tetrarch for stealing his brother's wife. And it got him in jail, right? So for 
Elijah to come up and speak up in this situation, it shows, it shows some fiber, it shows some courage, and that's really what we see here in the first thing. Before whom I stand. See, if we, in a, in a challenging generation with shifting goalposts all the time, the playing field's changing all the time, and the society's redefining right, wrong, truth, false, and all that, but God hasn't changed, so we know that he's the same yesterday and forever, and we know his word is absolute. God is light, him is no darkness at all. So, in our time across planet Earth, there's an innumerable amount of people. Obviously, there's 8 billion people on planet Earth now. When Elijah was alive, there was nowhere near those numbers. There's much less human beings. So, proportionally, 7,000 people is a lot more than what we would think of now. But still, they were the minority. And they were a terrified minority. Until they're on the down low. But God called Elijah. And you see, he stood with boldness. And it's just a reminder to us from Elijah... When you're the remnant and you're a minority in a land of chaos under Baal and people who worship Baal and their powers about Baal, just remember, stand before the Lord before you stand before men. Stand before the Lord before you stand before men. Get your focus right. Get your cadatoscope right. See Jesus high and lifted up. You know, Isaiah in his book, he says, what was this and what was that and what was this? And he gets to chapter five. and He goes, well, what was me? Because I've seen the Lord. And once he saw the Lord and the train of his robe filling the temple with glory, it was all over. And that guy did whatever God called him to do, and they sought him in half before his life was done. He, once you've seen the Lord and you stood before the Lord, you don't need to fear men. That's why people who have had near-death experiences or they've been through great tragedy and they've seen the Lord bring them through that, they're not moved. They're not moved by the intimidation of men. After Jeremy Camp lost his wife, his first wife, Melissa, I would admire his boldness because you can't shut a man up who was married for four months and buried his wife, the bride of his youth. And if he's telling you about the way it is with Jesus, and you're going to listen to it, but you're certainly not going to shut him up. Because I was in the room when Jesus came for his wife, and so was he. And the last thing she said is, I'm healed, and then she stepped into eternity. You can't, you're not going to, you can't. He was like unstoppable. I mean, forget the five songs that went number one. Jeremy Camp was like Elijah. And he filled all these places for the next three, four years with his songs, and the rest is history. But you can't tell someone who's touched eternity that way, that, that deep, that hurt, that wounded, that he can't tell you the truth. Because he's going to tell you the truth. And that's sometimes the benefit of great heartache and sorrow and tragedy is a great boldness. Or near-death experiences where you feel like, hey, I dodged the bullet. Everything I got right now is bonus time. A guy that works on our homes in Florida, Victor, he's a really neat guy. And I had, I've had great conversations with him. He's a handyman. He can fix anything. And he, and he does. He's a great guy. And I've had some good conversations with him. But he dropped dead a couple years ago. He's like 63 now. And he dropped dead. Because he's always like, whistle while you work. <laughs> like, there's never a bad day for Victor. And we love Victor. Everyone loves Victor. You know, he's the handyman you can trust when you own properties. But the guy's like, he goes, every day is a gift because I was dead. I stopped breathing. I came back to life. It's all a gift. The grandkids are in Atlanta. I go visit them sometimes, and I get to come work on this house today, and it's all good. Once you've been with the Lord, once you've seen eternity, once you've seen his glory, it just gives you a whole different perspective. And the older you get, the more, the, the less you should be inclined to fear men anyways, because you know, like, hey, you're going to be seeing the Lord. I remember my father-in-law, we were out to dinner a few years before he died, and I had a great relationship with Bill. We were at this restaurant in Sanitas, and Donald Trump came on the TV. And my father-in-law is a very profound Democrat. He worked for all the top ones as a lawyer and all this stuff. He's like, ah, oh, Donald Trump. And he couldn't breathe. Like, he was so worked up. And we're there with the grandkids. And, and he's like, and he got everyone else going that, that side of the family. And I said, hey, Bill, you know what? You're going to go into eternity really soon. And you're going to leave that guy behind, and you're going to stand before Jesus. And you should start thinking more about Jesus than Donald Trump. Now, Bill's an intelligent man. In fact, he was a genius. And I'll never forget what he did. He stopped, because he was sitting here, and I was sitting there, and he goes, you're right. You're right. And he received it, and he never talked a political conversation with me again the rest of his life. And all he ever talked about was Jesus going to heaven, the nuns who spanked him for being naughty when he went to Catholic school, and that I was friends with St. Peter, and he was quite certain he'd see me with Peter when he got to heaven. That's what he tells us. As he, you know, he had Alzheimer's and all that stuff. Even at the end, 
when I ministered to him on his deathbed, and he still was cognizant with me, but with no one else during COVID. I'm like, Jesus is coming for you, Bill. And he's like, yeah. See, once you've seen the Lord, it doesn't even matter who you see on TV. That's why we need to see the Lord. We need to stand before the Lord. We need to see Jesus. We need to see him lifted up. We need to see him in his glory and put perspective on all the people who are trying to beat down the church or beat down you. Whether they're doing it just because they don't like you or they just hate Christians or they just think you're not in line with their worldview. They're prophets of Baal. We need to stand before the Lord. And once we stand before the Lord, we'll be emboldened and we'll have courage. When they were stoning Stephen, when he stood before the Lord, the first death of a believer in the early church, what did he say? I see Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. He was standing bold before the Lord, and he saw Jesus standing for him while he was standing bold. So we're reminded by Elijah. It's kind of like if it was baseball, the first pitch he threw right behind the guy's head. I'm here, and I'm not backing down. I own the inside of the plate. I own the whole plate. Like, you, we come from authority. Jesus is the final authority, and yet the church so often is trepid and fearful and impotent. Christ didn't die on the cross, rise from the grave, and ascend to the right hand of the Father and give the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost so we can all be fearful they have in Jezebel. We're not at war with them. We're praying for them, but we want to let them know, man, we stand before the Lord, the living God. And by the way, it's not going to rain for the next few years because God rules over you and he rules over the affairs of men. We're reminded by Elijah to be bold because the spirit of Elijah is boldness and courage in the face of intimidation and bullying. And he just walked right in, boom, boom, mic drop, and walked away. And if you know what that is, you know what it is. It basically means there's nothing more to say. I just said it all. Now, we don't know if, if Ahab's like, who is this guy? Or it happened like on a parade when he's waving hands and kissing babies, you know, like, oh, what was that? What did that guy just say? It's not going to rain. <laughs> yeah, once, it, once there was a drought and there's no rain, you're like, what was that guy's name again? Who's that guy from Gilead? Yeah, go find him because that's where it's going. But Elijah reminds us to be bold. Then we also see in verses 2 through 7, we read this. Then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Get away from here and turn eastward and hide by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan River. And it will be that you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord, for he went and stayed by the brook Cherith, which flows into the Jordan. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And it happened after a while that the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Because he had prayed there would be no rain, and well, I prayed there would be no rain and I don't have any water. But the Lord obviously was in control. In the first thing that we looked at tonight in application with his courage, it was Elijah with Ahab standing before the Lord. The second thing is Elijah and the ravens before a drying up brook. This is interesting because the Lord told him, get away from here. Go east. Hide. So get away. Hide. So there's a time when you walk in Ahab's space and you declare the way it is. And there's a time when you do or you are on the down low. In the book of Acts, it's the same thing. Herod, one of the Herods, he kills James the apostle. He beheads him, and it makes everybody happy who hates Christians. Then he grabs Peter to do the same to Peter, but the angel of the Lord delivers Peter from the prison, and Peter escapes, and what do they do? They, they hide Peter away. Also in the book of Acts, Paul, who is incredibly bold under various circumstances, during the riot in uh, Corinth, or in Ephesus, they, they want to... Attack, a whole mob's worked up, and he wants to go and tell the mob the way it is. He's, 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 he's going to tell them and set, you know, explain to them theology with Jesus, and the, the leader's just like, they're going to kill you. You can't go there, and they hid him away. There is a time to just lay low. You see it. It says, the Lord told him, he's quoting the Lord. It's the word of the Lord. Get away, hide, and I'm going to take care of you there. Which is interesting to me. So we have these ravens that are supernatural ravens. I don't think any of us want to receive food from ravens, but if we're starving to death, food twice a day from the ravens is, is, is you know, it's a good, it's a good thing. It's the ultimate 
was it DoorDash now? They like, <laughs> God's like, oh, that's so old. Like, we're way in front of you on this one with the Ravens. But God sent him away. And think about this. For a season, all he could do was rest, consider, meditate, be patient, and wait on God. I mean, what do you do when you're sitting by a little ravine with a little bit of water and you're waiting for the ravens? They come in the morning. <laughs> I, the way my mind thinks, like, is it the same ravens or different ravens? Because they all look alike to me, but like, that's a big raven. Like, but either way, the ravens brought them, they, they brought them food. Worship generation, Church of Jesus Christ. Understand, God provided food for Elijah supernaturally through ravens. He made ravens find the food bring the food, and give him the food twice a day for a period of time that certainly would have, I'm sure it was at least months. And they sustained him. Once in the beginning God, Pastor Chuck Smith used to say this, if you get in the beginning God, you get the rest of the Bible. Which actually takes less faith to believe than that a rock came to life and, you know, evolved into an alligator and a monkey and you became you because you act like a monkey, so why don't you say you came from a monkey? When does a rock ever come to life? Inanimate matter become living matter? Never. But that's what the Darwinist evolutionists believe outside these doors. In the beginning, God. Once you know that God made the universe of trillions of galaxies with design and order from the micro to the macro, you realize, like, what's ravens? The birds do whatever he tells them to do. He, Jesus said he feeds the birds. He clothes the lilies of the field. To the pure, all things are pure. And when you have the eyes of faith, you see the handiwork of God, which we're going to move toward that, to the latter part of the study tonight with the, the great miracle. Because if you're looking for miracles, you'll see miracles. If you don't believe miracles, guess what? You won't get them. It's that simple. And to him who has more will be given. To her who has more will be given. You want to see God do miracles? He'll do miracles. Ladies, gentlemen, he'll show you. You'll see him in the details. Now, I've shared this story before, and I have to share it in this text because this is the text. That one day in Vermont, I made $17 in room service, and I was quite upset because we had hardly any food. We were pastoring, and I was pastoring the church there in Vermont in a hotel. It was a difficult time. I'm working minimum wage. It was very humbling. I thought this church would grow. I was going to be the Apostle Paul in New England. Instead, I was like Joe Average, room service, minimum wage at 31. God had a different plan. He was crushing me. But this one day, I had $17 cash tips. I went home with $17 cash tips. I got home, there was a check in the mail from someone I've never heard of that never sent a check before or after. How they even knew our address is mind-bending. No one knew my address in Vermont. Why would you know my address in Vermont? We're like the, the Brook Cherith. And there was a check for $170. The same day I got $17 cash, there was a check for $170, 10 times what I earned in room service. And I had a good chuckle with the Lord on that one. I said, well, you know, that's the Lord. I mean, but... Could it have been like 1,700? You know? Sorry, I just think big like that. Uh, and so that's the way that went. And that was, you know, in 95, 96. Well, then we come back to California. The first day we're back, my mother-in-law collapses. It turns out she's got cancer, stage three pancreatic cancer. Or it was just, it wasn't pancreatic. It was, just, it was stage three. It was bad. So our whole world changed. And I, and I was doing guest speaking at churches, but because I want to, there's no price tag on the word of the Lord. I never charge an honorarium. I just show up. Some people would take care of me. Some people would pat me on the back and whatever. It just went that way, right? But I would never, ever put a price tag on the, on the word of God. So when you're a guest speaker, you just can't do that. Now, Scott can give a suggested honorarium for leading worship because he'll say, what's your suggested honorarium? Scott Cunningham be like, oh, it's this or that, you know? But when you're the speaker, like, it's just, you, you would never do that. Like, because then you feel like a hireling. Like, you're paying me this much money to come up and like, let's say it, the Lord God. Like, it just doesn't feel right. So when you're the guest speaker, you just show up and you do it. And if they want to bless you, they bless you. Well, that's what we were doing. And in the end, we became very, very impoverished through this. Uh, but our faith was being tested and the Lord allowed it. Because Paul said to the Philippians in Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the context is he could live in absolute bottom line poverty or high end wealth, but he learned that the Lord was in it all. And that's what God was teaching us in 1996. So I went and got a job in the flower business where my brother used to work, but I had a background in the flower business before I was even a pro surfer. So I'm working with, uh, you know, the, the Latino guys in the warehouse. I'm the only white guy in there and doing all this stuff and making bouquets and all this. And Tom Reedy was very generous to give me the job. But the stress on Jennifer being pregnant with Luke and having young Timmy and the other kids was just too much and take care of her mom who's stage three 
certainly now would be considered terminal cancer. And she was the one doing everything for her mom as we lived with her mom. So then there was a situation, and I tell this story because, and I've asked myself over and over, what exactly these details, exactly these details, there's, they're within the three or four day window where I went out late at night to buy gas with coins. Because you don't want to buy gas at the gas station with coins when other people are waiting for you. This is 1996. So you go late at night, no one's there, you run in there, hey, two dollars and pennies, some nickels, some dimes, like five, six dollars in gas. And we're like George Mueller, we just take it to the Lord, we're not going to take it to men, this is the way it is right now. This is the way it is on planet Earth at this time. And that's what we did. Then Within the next morning or so, I woke up, and I was devotion was in this story. And the Lord showed me how he provided for Elijah through the ravens. And he showed me I needed to quit the job in the flower business that I just got because it was just too much for Jennifer. Because I had to leave like at 5.30 in the morning. It was just too much to have all three kids and be pregnant with Luke and her mom with cancer. It was, just, it was too much. There's got to be another way. So I quit the job. Then I got the call from Kobe and Sandals, who I didn't know any of those guys. They had a board meeting. They loved the Lord. They had a board meeting that morning, and God said, give, give Joy Brand money. How they got my number, I don't even know how they tracked me down. This was before cell phones. The same day, Surf Ride Board Shops in Oceanside, Bill Bernard decided it was a great idea to hire Joy Brand, the former pro surfer in the surf shop. I didn't know that. That day, also, in that realm of 72 hours, I had to drop Timothy off at the pre-K for Santa Fe Christian Schools in Encinitas. Now, the main campus is Solana Beach. You see it when you're going down south on the right-hand side. But their pre-K campus was in Encinitas, right across the street from San Diego High School, where Jennifer went to high school. So I drove up Santa Fe, dropped off Timmy, and when I was coming back, this is all in the same 72-hour window, is right after the Elijah devotion, I'm driving, and suddenly I feel like someone's watching me, and there's a raven flying next to me with a bagel in his mouth. And I, I did one of those. It was a raven with a bagel in his mouth. And it was flying on my passenger side. And I was like, I just, this, is my, this is what I just read. This is, and I remember, I was buying gas with pennies. And the raven, he was like, you know, he was like my wingman. Like, he went with me for a while. And Right away, I got more toward the freeway, because I'm only about a half mile from the freeway, the five there, going this way toward Swami's, going south toward the ocean. He goes up and flies away. And I like, I like chicken skin. I was like, wow, that's the Lord. Then I get the phone call from Cobian. Then I go out there, and they give me a check for thousands of dollars. Thousands. I was hoping for 500. They gave me the check. Thanks for thinking of me. I pull over on... Um, you know, Palomar Airport Road, going back toward the coast. I open the check. Whoa. It's like, I, should, I won the lottery. Like, who does this? Who gives a stranger thousands of dollars? Someone who loves the Lord and stands before the Lord, and God says they're a raven and they're going to provide. I was buying gas with pennies within 72 hours before this moment. Then I get the call the same day that Surf Ride wants to hire me to work in their surf shop. And essentially, they want to hire me to be a pastor in the shop and do ministry in the surf shop for eight hours a day. So just pray with everybody and just serve them. It was a great experience. That led to coaching. That led to Billabong coaching, which led to U.S. team coaching, Chilean coaching, U.S. team coaching, and Olympic surf team coaching. All these things were connected. I was going to go hide in the flower business, and God's like, no, you're Joey Brown the surfer, and I'm going to give you a ton of money. You're going to work at a surf shop, and I'll show you how this all works. Isn't that amazing? I share that story because this is the text that I would share it in. I occasionally share it like every few years I'll share it. But that's the way it was. That's what happened. And the lesson God told me is he is our provider. Sometimes we got to just wait on the Lord. He's got the right job. He's got the right house. He's got the right partner. He's got the right spouse. He's got, like, we just... We need to learn to wait on the Lord. At the Brook Cherith, Elijah learned to wait on the Lord. He had to wait on the Lord. What are you going to do all day but wait for the raven in the morning? Wake up, there's a raven, there's a raven in the evening. He couldn't, like, whatever he did, he couldn't go too far because the food's back here at the Brook Cherith. That's where the ravens come. And so this reminds us that we need to wait on the Lord and know he will provide for us. 
The Bible has so many promises that have never seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread in the, in the gates of the city. God is our provider. God promises to provide for us. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and all these things shall be added unto you. Don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Sufficient is a trouble for today. And then when he told him how to pray, he said, give us this day our daily bread because he does. And I don't think any of us want to be buying gas with pennies anytime in the near future. But if you ever are, just remember, God had me buy gas with pennies and had people I never know give me a check for thousands of dollars. And a person I'd never met give me a good job. And by the way, he paid me three times the going rate for working retail, too. You know what he said? God's going to bless us. And he did because he opened another shop down in South Senegal County and it thrived and flourished. God is good. And in the midst of our dark time, we're called to be lights. And God might have us stand boldly with conviction before Ahab. He might have us just wait by the brook sheriff and depend upon the ravens. But he's going to provide for us. And he wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him. And he wants to teach us he is a provider. We can have all the great plans in the world for finances and wealth building. But men and the forces of nature that God allows can destroy it all. You know, it's like owning property in Florida. Every time it's hurricane season, you're just like, oh, in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Like, you just, like, what are you going to do? I think of all these people and people we love and care about in southwest Florida that either rebuild or you start over somewhere else, but that's, a man or woman can receive nothing as it comes from the Lord. So if you lose everything, you got to be like Job and said, the Lord has given, the Lord has taken. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And what do we do today, Lord? Because... We're just passing through anyways. It all gets redistributed or destroyed. <laughs> so it's always about faith, your heart, people, and trusting in the Lord. So we're reminded that the provision comes from the Lord. Ahab teaches us to be courage and stand before the Lord, to be courageous so we can stand before uh, Elijah with Ahab. But the, the ravens teach us, hey, we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna trust in the Lord. We're going to wait on the Lord and know that he's going to provide for us. I mean, there's times we have to get our hustle on, but ultimately, God is our provider. And that's what Elijah needed to know. And as his faith was strengthened, now he's going to use his faith to strengthen the widow. So we read on in verse 8 now. So we have what God taught Elijah with Ahab. We have what God taught Elijah with the ravens. And now we have what God teaches Elijah with the widow. Verse 8. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Arise and go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, modern Lebanon, and dwell there. See, I've commanded a widow there to provide for you. And by the way, this is the region that Jezebel would have been from. So one woman's this way, another woman's that way. It's God, the Lord knows. Verse 10. So he arose and went to Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the city, indeed a widow was there gathering sticks. And he called her and said, please bring me a little, uh, a little water and a cup that I may drink. And as she was going to get it, he called her and said, hey, please bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. So she said, as the Lord your God lives... I do not have bread, only a handful of flour in a bin, a little oil in a jar. And see, I'm, I'm gathering a couple of sticks that I may go into it and, and prepare for myself and my son that we may eat and die. She says, this is our last meal. And Elijah said to her, do not fear. Go and do as you have said, but make me a small cake from it first and bring it to me. And afterward, make some for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord God of Israel, the bin of flour shall not be used up, nor shall the jar of oil run dry until the day of the Lord until the day the Lord sends rain on the earth. So she went away and did according to the word of Elijah, and she and her household ate for many days. The bin of flour was not used up, nor did the jar of oil run dry, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Elijah. Now, by the way, it's worth noting in this chapter, I didn't point it out Tuesday, and I need to just point out right now, the word of the Lord, that phrase is used all over this chapter. So everything going on has to do with the word of the Lord. God is speaking, Elijah is believing, and whoever wants to believe with him, they're going to be blessed. The word of the Lord is all, that phrase, the word of the Lord is all over this chapter. It's God's word that's empowering the faith and the promises and the miracles in this chapter. And so God said to Elijah, hey, I told a woman to take care of you, and she's going to. So he obeys, and he goes there. Then the woman knows it's him. She says, your God, yeah, as the Lord lives, but this is my last meal. And then he says, do not fear. And it did exactly the way he said it. Everything went the way he said it would. But think about this with, with this widow. He strengthened her faith because he said in verse 13, do not fear. 
And what would be more fearful than your last meal thinking you and your son are going to die and starve to death? See, we can read these stories and go like, no, really, like, the fear of not, the fear of going to bed with no food in your house. Some of you have traveled with me and you know I'm, Hector gave me the nickname Squirrel. Because in my backpack, I got all kinds of stuff. I'm like prepping all the time. I'm a little baby prepper. I'm always prepared. Like when I travel with my backpack internationally, I got all kinds of stuff. And I'm ready for everything to go wrong. And above all else, if it all goes wrong, I'm going to have water and food for at least two days in my backpack. It's all over the place. They learned during World War II, with all the, all the kids during World War II, that if they had bread, they have all this record of these things. If the kids would, especially during the bombing and all this stuff, the kids could sleep if they had a piece of bread. If they knew they were going to wake up and there was bread, they could sleep. But if they went to bed without assurance of any food the next day, the kids would be terrorized. And there's something about that. There's something about that. We just, when we know we wake up, there's a little bit of orange juice and there's some bread or whatever. But this woman, she's going to have nothing. This is, this is it. This is the last of everything. My good friend Jim O'Connor helped us plant the church in Burlington, Vermont. He never told me this until years later when they moved there with their kids. We stayed in a, a rundown motel for the first week or so trying to find work and get the church off the ground. Because he's a George Mueller kind of guy, that means he takes it to the Lord, not men. We never knew. But him and his wife and his kids ate off Bizquick for an entire week in that motel. An entire week, all they ate was Bizquick. Pancakes with no syrup. That's all they ate. But again, when you've experienced that in your life, now he's a homeowner, has a great job with benefits. He's going to retire with pension and all this stuff, working for the city of Virginia Beach, the school district and all that. These things teach you so much. You gain depth of character in these situations. Eating Bisquick, you're going to serve the Lord. He was a boss of 10 employees in a warehouse in Virginia Beach, and he owned a house. And he went with us. I talked him into going, and he followed he was up for it. He was a deacon in Virginia and a pastor in Vermont. And he left everything he knew. He sold his house. He gave up his job. He worked at McDonald's two weeks later in, in Vermont for minimum wage, dipping french fries. But that first week, they ate this quick. Man, we need to know what it's like to be the widow. You don't have to ask for it. If it's meant to be, you'll know. The Bible tells us when you take care of the poor, when you give to the poor, you, you know this verse in Proverbs, right? When you give to the poor, you're giving to the Lord. So even if you think someone's strung out and asking for food, you can't go wrong. You can't go wrong. You're given to the poor. And, God, and the Bible says that God gives great dividends on your investments with him. These are things that like, Elijah's got character, man. He's going to be caught up in a trade of fire. This is the real stuff. This widow, she's, this is it. And Elijah speaks faith to her, which is our final thought here with Elijah. He speaks faith to her. And like he learned the lesson of God's provision with the ravens. And now this woman's down to her last meal. And he says, give it to me. And what he's really saying is give it to the Lord. Like the widow's might. That's really like with Jesus and the widow's might when she put in all that she had. That's, this is a prelude to that. This is a foreshadow of that. He's saying, put the Lord first. He said, do not fear Put the Lord first. Elijah is the ambassador of the Lord to her. She's not a believer. And he says, put the Lord first. Give me the first fruits. So basically give the Lord the first fruits, the tithe, if you will, your offering. Then God will keep the oil flowing and the flour coming, and they will, they will not run out. A supernatural miracle. But Elijah's coming like... When you're in ministry, we always tell people like Brandon and Sam and these other pastors and Anthony, listen, you can't give what you don't have. That's what John Corson taught me 30 years ago in Oregon when I had lunch with him one day. He's like, look, you're going to need to give people faith, so you're going to have to live by faith. You're going to teach people to be generous, so you're going to have to be generous. You see, like, Elijah had to learn the lesson of God's provision supernaturally to be able to tell this woman, you can trust in God for supernatural provision. So if you ever come to me and say, I'm buying gas with pennies, I'm like, you know what? A guy could just call some up right now and tell him to give you $1,000 and you'll get the call right now and you get the, you just, you, you don't even know. Someone could walk in and be like, oh, I don't even know why I'm doing this. Here, take this, you know, and hand you an envelope full of cash. Is the hand of the Lord short or his arm shortened or his ear clogged and he can't hear or act? Of course not. 
It's always about the heart, and it's always about faith. So here, the opposite of faith is fear. And Elijah says, do not fear, because she would have been fearful. He's telling her to put her faith in the living God, in his word, in his promises, and his place as a heavenly father to provide for her. That's what he's calling her to do. And she's wise enough to do it. But man, can you imagine when she made the, that she did it, she thought it was the last, like, here's your Bisquick pancake. And then she gave it like the widow's might. And then she goes back to the jar, back to the farm, like, there's fire in it. There's oil. See, when we honor the Lord with our first fruits and we live by faith and we expect, we believe great things from God, we expect great things from God, he shows us great things. Because it's not about even the oil or the flour. It's about really believing that God is able. Like Ephesians 3 says, God is able to do above and beyond all that we could think or ask in our life to his glory in the church of Jesus Christ. He's always able. But are we willing to put him first and keep him first and let him show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are loyal to him? That is the issue. And for the widow, she passed the test. So the role of Elijah with the widow was to be the encouraging word to a fearful person to trust God. And isn't that something we can all be in 2022? How obtainable is that? We can be the encouraging word. I don't need to encourage people that their hope is in politics or in this thing or that thing. I just need to encourage them to look to Jesus and know that he'll, he'll take care of them. In some ways, ministry is fairly easy. It's pointing people to Jesus all the time. That's what it is. It's, it's speaking the word. It's speaking life. It's speaking promises and igniting your faith. Because all during the day in our society and with people we live with in a fallen world, you get all this unbelief, all this negative stuff, unbelief, fear, all this stuff. But if, if we wake up and we stand in the presence of the Lord and we've been transformed from glory to glory and we hear his promises and we feel his presence and, we, and not even necessarily feel his presence, just believe his presence because he says he's with us. And we show up and we speak life and we speak promises and we speak faith and we live faith. We're, we're just, we're like Elijah. We've been people like this right now. It's like, hey, Jesus is on the throne. Let's go. Come on now. Like Jonathan's armor bearer or, Elijah, or uh, Esther, if we live, we live, we die, we die. But let's go, man. We're not going to live in fear. We're going to live in faith in the person, the work, the promises, and the coming glory of Jesus Christ. That's, that's, that's faith, hope, and that's an anchor to the soul, as it says in Hebrews. So we are like Elijah in this way. We can be strengthened, staying in the presence of the Lord, to be courageous with people who are contrary to the Lord. And we learn those, provi- those lessons of provision and waiting on the Lord that he is going to take care of us. But as we have all this from the Lord, then we can go to someone like this widow and just speak life, exhort, comfort. That's what prophecy is in 1 Corinthians 14, speaking words of comfort exhortation and edification that's who we can be we can all be the prophetess and the prophet elijah in the worlds that we travel in if you just frame everything with a a faith-based attitude and positive perspective because jesus is on the throne we're gonna do just fine because things go wrong but if we really believe that things work together for good of those who love god and are called according to his purpose we're going to see it in a positive light through the eyes of faith in jesus and we're going to be able to just change the narrative on everything around us because we see things based upon the promises of his word, the person of Christ, and and what he's done. Like he fed us with the ravens and what he's going to do. He's going to take care of us. So he strengthened her faith. The latter part of the chapter, he raises, her her son dies, and he cries out to the Lord to heal the son and restore his life, and God does heal the son and restore the life. And the child is revived. The last verse, 24, says that he, he presented the son back to her. He says, your son lives. And she said, now by this I know that you're a man of God and that the word of the Lord is in your mouth is truth. So in speaking faith to her and dispelling fear and uncertainty and the promises and directing her to the Lord and according to the word of the Lord, which was spoken by Elijah, and according to the word of the Lord, that in the supernatural things that God did through Elijah proclaiming the oil and the flour and raising the son from the dead, she says, now I know. See, she knows that this Elijah represents the truth 
that the gods of the Sidonians are no match. They're gods of men, but he serves the living God. Now, now I know, and ultimately, when we think about our life and the legacy of our life, we want people to know whether we're standing before the Lord and then before Ahab or on the down low receiving provision through ravens or just encouraging and exhorting people who just are down to their last wit's end of everything, they need to know we serve the living God. And we believe that we know we can't change the past and we believe God's working in the present and we believe there's a future and a hope for all those who call upon the living God. That's how we're to live our life with Jesus Christ in every generation And he's a God of miracles. And I talked about this on Tuesday night. And I just close with this thought about the the oil and the flower and the raised sun. These are miracles. These are supernatural things. And, of course, the raven as well. And the rain not raining. When we're told in James that Elijah was a man with a nature just like ours, and he prayed it wouldn't rain and it didn't, that's the Holy Spirit telling us to have the same believing, expectant faith that Elijah had to stop the rain. And that same prayer that stopped the rain raised the dead son of the widow. That same prayer changed nature and defied the laws of nature, bringing the dead back from the grave. That's, and the, the amazing thing is, in the book of James, we're told that that's what God wants in us. That, he, that he'll do that in us. We're told to pray. And so I'm challenged to pray with fervency and expectation. Because Elijah is the amazing miracle worker. He summarizes the prophets in the Old Testament. And this guy is walking miracles, calling out Ahab, fed by the ravens, the oil, the flour, the dead son raised up, all this stuff. And in it, God is glorified. And he's just doing what he's doing as unto the Lord. And we want to be people that are, are believing people. We're believing God for miracles. We trust God for miracles and we expect miracles. And it's not over the top because there's a lot of realities in life. But we should never limit God by other people's perspectives or the devil's attack against the person of Christ and what he can do. And that's why we're told in 2 Corinthians to take every thought captive and obedient to Christ. Everything that exalts itself against the knowledge and the power and the glory of Jesus Christ. So basically that means we take the ownership to stand before the Lord wait on the Lord, encourage and bless for the Lord, and to expect great things from the Lord. I'm expecting supernatural things in the future in my personal life. As I was yesterday, I will be tomorrow, and I hope you do the same. Because if you're looking for miracles, you will see them. So open your eyes. Be encouraged. Wake up expecting great things from God and expecting him to show himself strong on your behalf because whether we're in the latter part of our life or the beginning part of our life, we are people who are believing in his person, his promises, his work, and his return. In Jesus' name.